verse 6 to 12, and let's read this together. John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. And whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of your servant Paul's words to the church in Corinth, how he professed to know nothing else other than Jesus Christ crucified. What a strange event to have at the center of our faith. And yet this morning, I want to pray what Paul professed, that we would know nothing else except Jesus Christ crucified that we would seek to live whatever days you have remaining for us on this earth in view and in the shape of the cross of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, a witness, as you know, has tremendous power to shed light on the truth. Uh, The Nuremberg trials of 1945 and 1946 are an excellent example of this. Convened after the end of the Second World War, the defeat of Germany, the first Nuremberg trial tried 22 of some of the most high-ranking officials in the Nazi regime. Men like Hermann Goring, once tagged as Hitler's successor. Men like Ernst Kaltenbrunner, the former head of the Gestapo. And on September 30th, 1946, the day of sentencing finally arrived and crowds packed in. Security was tight. Finally, the day of judgment had come on what was being called and has been called the greatest trial to ever take place. And after a long and arduous trial filled with eyewitness testimony, film screenings, cross-examinations, Every one of the men who was found guilty was convicted chiefly on the testimony of one witness in particular. Who who was that witness? What was that witness? Well, it was the Nazi party's own meticulous record-keeping. As was the case for some like Goring and Kaltenbrunner, the Nazis literally hung themselves. From property stolen to mass executions, all these records were kept. The Nazis recorded and kept track of every little thing that they did meticulously. 
Two journalists writing on the Nuremberg trial even noted that it is doubtful in the age of emails and shredders if such overwhelming evidence will ever be assembled again. In the case of the first Nuremberg trial, the witness of the Nazi records played a significant role in shedding light on the truth. And now imagine with me for a second if those records did not exist, if they did live in the age of shredders and emails. Imagine they did not exist. The outcome of the Nuremberg trials, I think it's safe to say, affected and impacted millions of people. It was a precedent-setting case for how conquered nations treated the nations they just conquered. Some looked at this case for a just basis on how to navigate the post-war settlement of Europe. To remove the witness of the Nazi records would have put all of this in jeopardy. It's not a stretch to say that we would still be feeling the effects of this trial today had it not gone the way it did. Now, at this point... I want us to leave mid-century Germany and look once more at the book of John. See, in our text today, John envisions a trial of much greater consequence than those that took place in Nuremberg. He said in verse 12, I don't know if you heard it, that this trial is for everybody, every person who has ever lived. And this trial will end either with a sentencing to eternal life or to death. In this very important trial, how can we ensure that all the right witnesses are present? That no key witness is absent. And John will build from our text last week, and he will say this, good news we have this morning three witnesses whose testimony makes all the difference in this case. However, John adds, the question before you and before me and every person who's ever lived is whether these witnesses are testifying in your defense or against you. That's the question this morning. So here's how we're going to look at our text. First, the three witnesses. Second, the trustworthy source. And then thirdly and finally, the final verdict. The three witnesses, the trustworthy source, and the final verdict. Bible's open. I want to first look at the three witnesses. In 1 John 5, 6 to 8, we read this and follow along with me in your Bibles. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, of course, in all of these sermons, John is building from what has come in the previous weeks. And last week, if you remember, our text was bookmarked with a declaration of who Jesus is. And if you missed last week's sermon, Peter summarizes the question, who is Jesus, really succinctly in Matthew 16, 
When asked this very question by Jesus, Peter says this. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the question on trial this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus to be? It's a question on trial in John's day as well. And I think it's the question on trial whether they realize it or not in your workplace, in your home, in the broader culture. Again, whether people realize it or not, by their words or their actions, we are all living in view of having made some decision concerning this question. Who do you believe Jesus to be? And John has lined up for us this morning three witnesses that he believes testifies to the truth of Jesus' identity. Look again at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Now, before we look at these witnesses in turn, we should first acknowledge what John is doing here. In the Jewish context in which John existed, it was necessary not to have just one witness, but to have multiple witnesses, right? That makes sense, to corroborate the truth. In fact, we see this all the time in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, we read this. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. But a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This is the, 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 the history in which John is stepping into, the tradition in which John is embracing here. John is picking up on this theme of multiple witnesses needed to corroborate what is true. And what I want us to do is look at each of these witnesses in turn to show you how they build a case for the claim that Jesus is the Christ. And so first, the water and the blood. We'll look at those two together. John says about Jesus that, it, that this is he who came by water. And I believe that John is this morning referring to Jesus' baptism. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find an account of Jesus' baptism. Matthew tells us that Jesus comes from Galilee. He leaves Galilee and he encounters a man named John the Baptist. And John, of course, at first, refuses to baptize Jesus, Right? John's baptism, Matthew tells us, was for repentance. Jesus is God, of course, has nothing to repent of. And yet in Matthew 3, I want us to hear how Jesus responds and what takes place after this baptism. I want us to examine this together. Jesus answered John like this, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is one of those early identifiers in the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God that he's not just a man, but there's more happening here. See, in his baptism, Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's identifying with sinful people like you and me 
who do actually have things to repent of. One scholar said it like this. Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner, along with everyone else. See, the pleasure of the Father in the Son is the pleasure expressed and made known audibly to all nearby of a father who sees his son walking in humble obedience. And it's this humble obedience that will eventually be seen in the other witness, what John calls here the blood. If you're familiar with the Christian story, it should not surprise you that the blood is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his gruesome death on that cross. See, if Jesus showed humility in his baptism, it was only a foreshadowing of the greater humility that he would show in his crucifixion. And to understand the water and the blood together as witnesses, you'll have to humor me for a moment. I want us to go into the context of 1 John. Remember with me, if you want to close your eyes and envision this world, you can. If not, don't worry about it. Remember, in John's day, there were those who would seek to downplay the humanity of Jesus, repulsed by the idea that God, the, the divine, the deity, would dwell in yucky, evil flesh, the material world. They held and they taught that Jesus was really some ghost or some spirit, but, but surely not an enfleshed person. But there are also those who are arguing the same thing, essentially, from a different perspective. They said this, Jesus was merely human with some divine assistance. And one of the most famous people we know of in history to claim this about Jesus of Nazareth was this man named Serinthus. Serinthus was this early Gnostic teacher, very, very, very influential. And Serinthus, he would have been known by John. It's quite possible that John has Serinthus and his disciples in mind as he's writing this text. Serinthus claimed that at Jesus' baptism, Christ, the, the deity, the divine, descended on just human Jesus. But at Jesus' crucifixion, Christ, the deity, the divine, the divine, left Jesus. You'll notice, that's why John put in our text this morning, not by the water only. See, Serinthus only believed that Christ was present at Jesus' baptism. But surely, he thought, Christ could not have been present at his crucifixion. Essentially, he taught that there was Jesus the man and Christ the deity, and they were two separate people. But in saying that Jesus came by the water and the blood, John says, as he actually will later, lies. Lies. Jesus is fully God and fully man. As the Son of God, Jesus goes under the waters of baptism and his blood is poured out on the cross. He does both of those things, fully God, fully man. This is the truth the water and the blood testify to. And so I want to ask you this morning, who do you believe Jesus to be? 
Who do you believe him to be? It matters how you answer. And in the context of the courtroom that we find ourselves in this morning, it matters for your eternal life. There's this ancient story. It's told to us by Irenaeus, an an early church leader. And he got it from Polycarp, one of the disciples of John. And it goes like this. I don't know if this story is true or not. I think it's true. But either way, it communicates the John that we have before us in our passage this morning. And the story goes like this. John, this beloved disciple of Jesus, is in Ephesus. And as one does when they go to the big cities, John goes to the baths. Goes to the baths. But as soon as John goes inside the, the bath in Ephesus, he sees also that Serinthus is in there as well. And let Irenaeus tell us what happens next. He writes this. And seeing Serinthus, this is John, inside, John rushed out without taking a bath, saying this, let us flee before the bath falls in, for Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. It's a funny story on one level, right? Picturing John with like a towel around his waist or something, running out of the baths. Probably wasn't the case, but it's funny to imagine that. And the same token, it's also not funny at all. It's deadly, deadly serious. In our text this morning, John draws a direct line between our outward proclamation, who you say Jesus is, and our internal disposition, the state of our soul. He said in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Well, how? This leads us to our third witness, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been called by some the shy member of the Trinity. The shy member of the Trinity. And it's because of passages like this. These truths we have come to believe about the identity of Jesus, as we saw last week, this is the result of the Spirit's illumination. The light bulb goes off in our head, not because I'm smart or insightful, or have meditated long enough, or have fasted long enough, because the Spirit, in His grace and mercy, has allowed me to believe these things about Christ. And one of the Spirit's role in our life is, according to Jesus Himself, to glorify Jesus, to bear witness to Jesus, to lead us in the truth of Jesus. This same Spirit of truth is the one who lives in us, And John writes this in his Gospels. And I will ask the Father, and I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Again, we see this title. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But listen, Christ City, you know him. You know him. For he dwells in you, sorry, he dwells with you and will be in you. We have here the threefold witness of Jesus' baptism, Jesus' crucifixion, and the Holy Spirit. And they all agree on this, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Lord, that he's the Savior. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to scoff at the testimony of these three. You might be tempted, if not to join Serenthus, 
agree, though, that Jesus was somehow less than God. But John anticipates this. Look at point number two, the trustworthy source. Verses 9 to 10, they read like this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now, in the courtroom, perhaps the only thing that matters more than the testimony of the witnesses is the character of those witnesses. I read this story this week uh, where a lawyer was putting together a case uh, in a securities fraud case. So like, you know, manipulating the stock market, something like that. And, and he paid to use an expert as a witness in this case. And he appeared, the expert, to be a star witness to be a slam dunk for this lawyer. The only problem about this expert was that this expert himself was involved in another case where he was being charged himself with securities fraud. And you can imagine the lawyer being frustrated at this. His star witness was gone. His credibility was destroyed. He cannot have this person stand before a jury. See, John Roots the credibility of these three witnesses this morning in the highest possible authority. He uses again, as John loves to do, this lesser to greater argument. And he essentially says this, listen, you accept the testimony from people, don't you? And we all nod our heads, yes. If, you know, if someone says that restaurant is good, I'll, I'll go to that restaurant. This is a good school, I'll send my kids there, Right? Take this highway, don't take this road, it's closed, it's better. Okay, that sounds like a good idea, I'll do that. We accept all the time the testimony of men. Then John says, why would you then not accept this testimony about God concerning his son? God for whom, Hebrews says, it is impossible to lie. So I want to put it to you like this. Biblically speaking, there is no neutrality when it comes to the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Either Jesus is who he said he is, or God is a liar. Either Jesus is who he said he is, or God is a liar. And I know we love nuance, and I know we're fond of neutrality and fence-sitting, but nuance and neutrality and fence-sitting will not serve you one single iota here. It's not, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, oh, shucks. Dang it, that's too bad. No. It's, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? No. Then to you, God is a liar, a witness not worth hearing. And if this sounds extreme, let me bring it down a little bit. I think there is another way, smaller way, we make little of the testimony of God. It's not just in the overt rejection of his testimony concerning his son. It also happens when we do things like this. Ready? Maybe this is you. I do it all the time. We read a challenging verse in the Bible. Maybe it's a challenging verse about how we spend money. 
Or maybe it's a challenging verse about healthy sexuality. Or, or maybe it's a challenging verse about how we view and treat other people. Maybe it's the verse where it says, you know, we love our enemies. So we read that challenging verse and we say, oh, that's hard. That is a hard verse. I'm going to read an expert on this verse. And actually, I'm going to read an expert who I know will lessen this command for me, make it a bit more palatable for me, easier for me. We do it all the time. And in doing this, what's happening? The authority of God, his supreme trustworthiness, is denigrated as we prefer the opinions of philosophers, of scholars, of op-ed columnists over and above the eternal God. Charles Spurgeon, unsurprisingly, the, the great 19th century English preacher, said it much better than I ever could. He said this to his congregation all those years ago. God is to be, is to be believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly. Of his own son, he knows as none else can. Of our condition before him, he knows. Of the way to pardon us, he knows. There is nothing in God that could lead him to err or make a mistake. And it were blasphemy to suppose that he would mislead us. It were an insult to him, such as we may not venture to perpetrate for a moment to suppose that he would willfully mislead his poor creatures by a proclamation of mercy which meant nothing, or by presenting to them a Christ who could not redeem them. The gospel with God for its witness, cannot be false. Whatever may be the witness against it, the witness of God is greater. We must believe the witness of God. The source of this testimony is God. It could not be higher. Again, I ask, do you believe him? And if you believe him, let me ask, then who do you say his son is? Last point. Point number three, the final verdict. I just want to end with this. This is more of a pastoral note. This has been quite an intense, heavy sermon from an intense, heavy passage in Scripture. But there's a pastoral note that ends our text this morning. I believe and you believe, don't we, so easily what other people say about us. I believe it so easily. If someone has a critique against me, I believe that immediately. If there's something good to say, less eager to believe it, but I might believe it as well. I believe and you believe so readily and so easily what other people have to say about us, but we are together slow to believe what God has said about us. We're slow. The God who knows all and sees all who never lies, we are slow to believe what he says about us. But I want you to hear this morning, Christ City, definitively, 
the final and better verdict the Father pronounces over you if you are in Christ. Look at verse 11 to 12 with me. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Let me say that again or read it again. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Again, in John's writings, life is not just eternal forever life, but is a qualitative thing. It's full life, abundant life, here, now, not just future. And John ends, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I want to leave 1 John for just a second, and I want to pillage the rest of the New Testament. And I want to tell you I want you to know, I want you to hear what God, not man, what God, who cannot lie, says about you. Again, if you want to close your eyes, and if you want to hold open your hands to receive this, let me encourage you to do that this morning. But this is what the Bible says about you, what God says about you. He says, in Christ, you are chosen from the foundations of the earth. In Christ, you are redeemed from slavery to sin and you receive freedom in Christ. You are ransomed from the wages of sin and death and given new life in Christ. The authoritative witness says this, you who were once dead in your sins and trespasses, you are now alive in Christ. In Christ, you are a new creation, beloved of the Father, a child of God, adopted as his own own, eternally secure, because Jesus accepts and keeps all who come to him. The authoritative witness says you are justified. You are made clean. You are being made whole. The one who does not lie says you can forgive others, even as you yourself have been forgiven. The one who does not lie says you are not alone, but are now a citizen of heaven. You're now a member of a new family. You now look at others in the church and you see mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and you encourage them with the truth of who they are in Christ, even as they encourage you to do the same. What we're promised in Christ, hear this Christ said, you receive it this morning, is the opportunity to join in and to know the very life of the one who has come to testify. It's as simple as this. It's as simple as this. Believe the testimony, be joined to Christ, have eternal life, or don't believe the testimony, call God a liar, and do not have eternal life. This is the final verdict. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the courtroom in which we stand and in which we will stand, uh, we do not speak in our own defense. We thank you that your son Jesus speaks in our defense on our behalf. He says, I have bought this child. I have died on the cross for their sin. My perfect life is counted to them. They have put their faith and trust in me.
I pray for every person on this call, and especially those who do not know you, that they this morning would put their trust in you, believe in you. And in doing so, would they not only be declared not guilty, but would they soon find they are adopted in the very life and family of God himself? What good news. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.